Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on CagesidePress.com. I'm Dan Gumby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC is actually off this weekend. That's right. We're not going to see any UFC fights this weekend, but that does not mean we don't have exciting content for you right here, right now. We have got all kinds of stuff about the Derek Lewis real gain interim title fight. People are mad about it. People are happy about it. People are indifferent about it. We're going to be talking about it. And after that, we're going to be doing a combat countdown about interim title fights. That's right. We're going to count down our five favorite interim title fights of all time. So make sure you catch that as well as making sure you catch our interviews. That's right. Even though we ain't got fights this weekend for UFC, I've still got the interviews for you guys. Kicking off the show today, we're going to talk to Charles Johnson, who fights as the headliner of LFA 110. He's looking for that flyweight title in the elusive UFC contract. We're going to be talking to him about both of those things. Plus, later on in the show, I'm going to be talking to somebody who is fighting on UFC 264, McGregor versus Poye, and that is Jerome Rivera as he gets ready for his upcoming fight with Zalga Zumagulov. So you're going to get both those interviews, that great combat countdown, and of course, we're going to get to that just as soon as I let you know that this episode of the Top Turtle MMA Podcast is brought to you by Better Than Vegas. Better Than Vegas is the home for the avid sports better, providing insights, analysis, and free betting picks. It's like the YouTube for sports betting. Head on over to betterthan.vegas, browse, search, and follow fellow handicappers and sports personalities as they give you thoughts on upcoming sports contests in every sport imaginable. In fact, you can head on over there and check out my picks each and every week. I give you a bonus selection for upcoming UFC fights that you can see only on our page at Better Than Vegas. Better Than Vegas brings you this episode of the Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. All right, and joining me today is Charles Johnson, who fights Yuma Horiuchi at LFA 110 this upcoming Friday. So, Charles, I wanted to start by talking about your career in general, because, you know, back in September of 2018, you actually fought top five flyweight Brandon Royval. You lost. You then spent two and a half years away from MMA. You boxed in that time. What, what made you just decide to take that kind of a layoff, or, or was it more of chance than anything else? Um, the first year and a half was basically me in um, Thailand. Uh, I, I went and did uh, Tiger Muay Thai tryouts. I got an invitation. Um, actually earned a spot on Tiger Muay Thai's team through the tryouts. And they offered me a one-year sponsorship where they assisted me with living, a meal plan, and full-time training. So I was in Thailand. I got there in 2019. And from, I was set to be there for a year, but then COVID hit while I was there towards the end of my sponsorship. And I got out, I ended up being out there about six, seven, eight months longer than planned, which was fine. They still took care of me. Um, things were a little tough, but um, it was a blessing. It's a, if you want to be stuck anywhere during a, a pandemic, I would say Thailand is a nice <laughs> place. So um, the, the COVID rates weren't very high. 
and the people, the people are beautiful and the culture is amazing. It's just been very rough um, for the Thai people since COVID hit because they depend a lot on tourism. So um, that layoff was due to me, uh, partially due to COVID. Everyone, most fighters, when you're watching these fights, they're saying, oh, he had a one-year, two-year layoff. <laughs> but that's mm -hmm. mostly just because of the pandemic. Everybody's had about a year off because of that if they're not in a big promotion. So for me, it was just a great thing because I just got to focus on training. And uh, I wasn't able to fight, which was frustrating, but I trained every day, worked my ass off. Well, and, and I was going to ask you that, too, you know, because obviously that amount of time away can make some people feel rusty. But in, in your comeback fight, you did not look all that rusty. And a matter of fact, you looked amazing in there. D did you feel like you, you know, it never left the cage? Did you feel like it was just, you know, another fight? Or did you feel like you had some time that it took you to get your feet back in there? Um, yeah, like being away wasn't a choice. I, I was always an active fighter. Um, even when as an amateur, I had 25 fights. While I was running cross country in college, I was when I came home on winter breaks, I would try to take fights, even though I wasn't training full time. Um, so I've always been an active type of person. So as a professional, I've always been trying to fight as much as possible and fight the best people as possible. And so um, when you train with the Bantamweight champion of the world for two fight camps, you will that's what type of a of mindset you have to have you have to be prepared you have to come in there ready to train and you have to come in there um able to handle yourself so that type of atmosphere and tiger muay thai you get many people from big promotions passing through all the time so the amount of time i was able to spend there and work on my skill set that was already polished but just round out some things it was mainly a mindset and confidence boost for me well, that's awesome to hear. Now, I do want to go back to something you said there, too, because you, you ran cross-country growing up, and, and that's not usually a background we see for all that many fighters. Well, what made you do cross-country and MMA at the same time, uh, and how did, how did those two things work together? Yeah, I was a Division One collegiate track and field and cross-country athlete, and so um, I had a couple things, hiccups, my, after my freshman year of college, I was having too much fun. So I had to go home for uh, a year uh, after my sophomore year and get my, you know, schooling together. And I uh, lost, I had a full scholarship. I lost my scholarship that I was at at my school. So I went back home to try to, you know, just get my things in order as far as school. And uh, I left school with a 3.8 GPA. But, you know, my, my first year, I kind of messed myself up because I was just enjoying <laughs> being in college too much so um really it was one class that kind of messed me over but um all that being said I've always been pretty fine in my studies I just didn't know how to study when I got to college so that kind of was rough for me and so um when I went back home I met up with a friend that I knew from high school who I wrestled with uh, I call him my brother Ken 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 Porter and uh he was training he was ahead about 50 amateur career fights by the time he finished so he was pretty experienced and he was actually like trying to get other guys in it and manage guys and get them into it so he hit me up and said he needed somebody to train with him for his title fight just a body for wrestling and he knew I could wrestle I was an all-state wrestler in high school and so um he got me into it my I fought after two weeks of training with him I fought with him on the same card he was preparing for because somebody backed out and uh I was hooked that was 2011, 12. 
Um, I was 20 years old, so they had to put X's on my arm because we fought in a casino. <laughs> yeah, so it was a – but I, I was hooked immediately to it because um, I, I kind of gassed out in the fight. My arm's tired. But I took the guy down all three rounds. I won the fight. He was a kickboxer. He was way more experienced in MMA than me and just striking, period. I didn't know how to throw my left hand at all. But with my wrestling background, I just took him down every round. And so after that fight, I was hooked on MMA. And so um, from that point forward, you know, it was just whatever I could do to get back to that, I would. So while I was in college, you know, you're not supposed to be fighting. I'm a Division One mm-hmm. athlete. I'm on scholarship, you know. But, you know, me being me, I just I can't stay away from something that I love. And I had grew a new love for fighting. And so when I came home, um, when I came home, I would try to get fights you know, on the winter breaks, et cetera, and train for a couple of weeks before the fights. And, you know, so um, I had 25 amateur for fights, 21, three and one. And I, I won a title as an amateur. So, you know, I was just used to competing at the highest level of sports, you know, as far as track, I was a two-time national champion, AAU national champion. Um, I was like ranked nationally every year from the time I was 14 until the time I was 18. Um, in the steeplechase and the two mile and the 3000 meters and the 1500. And so um, when I got to college, I really latched on to the steeplechase. It became my race. It's a man's race. You know, it's, it's a, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but we jump, that's the race where we jump over the, the horses, like mm-hmm. uh, similar what the horse do in, in their races and we jump over the water pit. So that's what the steeplechase is. And so, um, yeah, it just, I've always been that type of person. I want to attack the, the toughest things um, same way I did when I was running track. When I became a distance runner, it was it was tough at first, but I kind of fell into it, fell in love with it. And now that I'm a fighter, it's only been a bonus to me um, because my lungs are really strong. And uh, I thought I was going to be a, tri- a triathlete in college before I found MMA. And so after college, you know, so – um, I will, I really latch on to like Diaz, the Diaz brothers, cause they, they are like super, they do triathletes, triathlons, et cetera. And you can see it go into their MMA game as well. Well, I love that mentality. Now let, let, let's talk about the next challenge in front of you, which is Yumahara Uchi. Uh, it's an interim title fight at LFA 110. You know, he's obviously a very young guy. You, there's not a lot of things out there on him, especially because most of his fights come in Japan earlier in his career. W- what did you sort of know about Yuma before they offered him to you as a fight? And what are your thoughts about him now? Um, I was familiar with him through Team Oyama because I went down there and trained uh, uh, before my fight against Sean Santella um, in 2018. And uh, I sprained my MCL out there getting ready for a fight, and those guys took care of me. And uh, so I've been very familiar with Team Oyama ever since 2018 and keep tabs, keep track of all their fighters and root for them, honestly. And so um, when I got this fight offer, I had already saw his fight against Donnie, uh, Donnie Freelo. Um, I, I knew Donnie from Thailand because Khalil Roundtree is a close friend of mine who was training in Thailand and his brother Donnie came out there for a few couple weeks to train and we trained together. So I watched their fight on LFA. Um, and so when this fight was presented to me, I was like, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Timo Yama. 
Um, I had just saw Coach Oyama in Abu Dhabi and trained with Alex Perez um, and got a day in with him of training while I was out there in January because I cornered uh, Joaquin Buckley for his fight against Alessio Chirico. And so when this fight was presented to me, it wasn't a surprise. Um, I was excited about the matchup. I know it's going to be a tough matchup. Um, I, I know how hard they work at their gym. And so he seems like he's being groomed out of that Japanese uh, market. You know, he has a big market in the Japanese side. So they, it's, it's in his best, the LFA's interest, the UFC's interest, everyone's interest if he does well. You know, so, but I'm just a different animal. So they're winning. It's a win-win situation with them in this title fight. Absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned in there to the, the UFC, the initials, UFC. The UFC seems to cherry pick all of the champions out of LFA. A lot of times that's even why we see interim champions is people seem to be lined up for UFC fights even before they are. Do you feel like a win in this fight for sure guarantees you that UFC contract? Yeah, I just have to be dominant, you know, um, put on a really good performance. Don't, I, I feel like, you know, the difference between me and the, the guy who just had the belt, who was Victor Altamirano, he beat Nate Smith on a week's notice fight, but Nate Smith had a week notice to get there. When you get that type of fight, you have to dominate. And he won the fight, hands down, but he didn't, I don't think he showed them enough. And that's why he's going to be fighting on the contender series. I don't plan on fighting on the contender series. I know I should be fighting in the UFC and the top guys in the world. And so I want to go out there with this next performance and win the belt and win it in a dominating fashion where they see me and they see something that is different. See something that is that people always have exciting fights. So they're going to see something. I want them to see something like we got to get this guy on our roster. We got to get this guy in here. So that's the plan. Well, and if that's the plan too, I was wondering if you could wager a prediction for me before I let you go. How do you see this one ending? Um, I mean, this fight can end on the feet or the ground. With me, I'm, I'm pretty flowy. Um, I can get from one position to the next and catch, catch you in a lot of positions. But um, it's gonna, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to finish this fight somewhere in the second or third round. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This was Charles Johnson, who fights Yuma Horauchi at LFA 110 on this Friday. Charles, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. I appreciate your time as well. I just want to say one thing to everyone to make sure you're being positive. The world's getting back to normal, you know, and get used to, you know, taking care of one another again. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Charles Johnson. I, once again, am Daniel Gumby Freeland. Join now by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, let's start here. The UFC announced a interim title fight for the heavyweight title, which was defended just three months ago, or, or won just three months ago, rather. What do you think about this Derek Lewis surreal gain title fight? Gumby, I am conflicted. My first thought is this is pure bullshit. Naganu just won his title three months ago. I view interim titles, uh, they only need to happen when there's a massive injury or some sort of controversy. I can even understand with like a legitimate contract beef where you think the champion might not defend, you know, for up to, say, a year. That's where I think an interim title comes in. 
This, to me, reeks of the UFC playing games. You know, it came out this week that Nagano is rep by CAA, who, of course, are major rivals with uh, UFC parent company Endeavor, fighting for Hollywood celebrities, musicians, athletes, what have you. And there's certainly some sort of beef there. This feels just like Dana White, Ari Emanuel, and the guy that Ariel outed as like the new bad boy in the UFC upper management. It feels like them just playing games with fighters like Naganu, who are just pawns in their game. Now, that all being said, so I think it's bullshit. That being said, I'm going to watch the hell out of the fight, and on the night, I'm not really going to care. Five years ago, interim and all that bullshit used to bother me. It's just kind of a part of the game now, and I don't know. I'm not not going to watch the fight. Yeah, what well, and I, I, I'll say this too is is like when they first announced it, I was like, whatever. So like, so like clearly Francis is not going to be ready on the time frame that they want him to be ready. And if that's true, an interim title fight doesn't bother me. And and that doesn't mean if it, if he's going to be out a year, it, it doesn't bother me. If he's going to be out two years, it doesn't bother me. If he's going to be out six months and they want a title fight in there. It doesn't bother me. The only thing that bothered me is clearly he seemed to be in the dark about it. You know, like if they had just gone to him and he's like, hey, I'm not going to be ready till September, which is which is where the reports are right now. His his management said they'd be ready in September. I'm not going to be ready till September. And the UFC goes, look, we need a title fight somewhere in the summer. And all we have left is if heavyweight, everybody else is booked. We're just going to do an interim fight. You're still the champ. We're still going to book you in September with the winner. You know, like, this is just how to, if he was informed that this was going to happen because they needed, you know, you know, they, they very clearly need a title fight to headline big cards. They, they clearly know that that's what they want to do to bring the casual fan in. So if they had just gone to him and said that, I'd have been fine with it because then Francis knows Francis is okay with it. Francis either rushes himself or is just, you know, knowledgeable of the situation that you're right. The fact that they sprung it feels like a negotiation tactic, and that I don't love. So yeah, I'm gonna say I'm I'm fine with the fact that interim title fights are being made. I'm gonna watch the hell out of it because it's a weird style fight, which we'll get to obviously when it comes around. But like, I'll also say this: I, I like hate the way that they went about it. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing too. I mean, you just said it yourself. If he's ready in September. You're talking about a 30-day difference, maybe even less than a 30-day difference. And there are a lot of title or there are a lot of uh, champions right now who are unbooked. It just seems so weird to shove the interim title right there when he's saying he was ready in September. But, you know, at the same time, who cares? I mean, like, okay, so let's just say Lewis ends up being the interim champion. We get it's the fight. the we, same we, fight. Yes. yes. Yeah, it's, it's the, the same, same fight. And it, it, you know, for me, the only thing that I think actually visually bothers me is when they put the title on an interim champion and it looks like the same title. I feel like it should have like a big eye on it, spray painted, <laughs> the old NWO style, like just something that marks like, hey, yeah, this is kind of like a title, but it isn't. But we'll see because maybe the champion never comes back. And that's clearly not the case here. But, you know, you also have to think about this. If there are domino effects to this kind of stuff. You know, they had to, they also didn't have a title fight for October and they had to move Glover versus Jan to October. And that's going to be in Abu Dhabi. That severely messes up the way those two fighters were training and what their fight week is going to look like all because there was nothing in October. So 
you know, if any, I mean, I guess in, in a way I'm almost defending the UFC here. They have a slate of pay-per-views over the next four months that were severely underbooked. And they needed to, you know, I guess fill them out. I don't know what's going on with certain other, you know, uh, champions right now. But there are not a lot of championship fights booked for whatever reason right now. So you get the chaos of Derek Lewis, Cyril Gain being for an interim title. Yeah, and, and again, I think it's probably fine if they had informed Naganu, right? Like, and that's I think the bottom line in all of this is that, like, you're right. They need to fill out these pay-per-views, and there, there's already a title fight on this one too, by the way, which is is a whole other point here. But like, well, which was the other one? What's the uh, other one? Uh, it's Amanda Nunes versus Juliana Pena. Um, and clearly, yeah, right. clearly, they're like Juliana Pena is not headlining a pay-per-view anytime soon, right? Like that. That's the that's the word, right? That that's what they're saying right. here. So I would say, but I get that they want to put more more title fights on a card than one. And they don't have a lot of champions defending or ready to defend right now. So, like, that's fine. Like, if, if you need to do that to bring the casual fan in, like you said, I used to care about interim title fights and be mad at them. I don't care anymore. I'm fine with you doing them. Just, like, do right by the champion. That's all I'm saying. Just just do right by yeah. Francis Ngannou. Tell him it's coming. Tell him to get ready for November against the winner. Yeah, exactly. And I'm gonna. this is the last thing we'll say on it because I think we've beaten it up enough. But... And I'm with you on that. I'm Team Francis here, and I don't love Uncle Dana and a lot of the negotiation tactics. That's what I started with when you asked me what I thought of this. But I will say, when you really think about it, if we end up getting Lewis versus Naganu, which, by the way, was supposed to be like Naganu versus John Jones once upon a time, and the, you know the, the whole thing has gotten freaking crazy. But that all being said, if we end up with Lewis versus Naganu, Naganu's still going to get his same pay-per-view points. And if anything, as much as it, there's nothing is being taken away from Naganu. And if anything, and as much as I hate to admit it, you put champion versus champion, quote unquote, on a pay-per-view poster, Lewis holding that interim title on the pay-per-view poster actually probably brings in a few extra casual fans. Yeah. So, and, and even surreal game does like, this would be the chance to get surreal gain a, a win over an opponent that casual fans know, right? Because the win over Volkov was impressive in its own right, right? Like he did a really great technical performance. No casual fan would have watched that, period, A. And B, if they had watched that, been like, give me surreal gain again, right? Like all of them need him to go beat somebody like Derek Lewis. So like, I think you're right. It does great things for Francis, it, it, if it wasn't just a negotiation tactic, right? Like if they just went to him and were like, hey, here's what we want to do. Yep, agreed. All right, let's move on. It's time for our favorite segment on the show. Well, I guess it's tied for one of our favorite segments on the show. We're bringing back the combat countdown this week. I feel like we haven't done one of these in a while because we've had a lot of fight cards recently. And this week, we're going to be counting down in honor of Cyril Gain versus Derek Lewis. In honor of that and this whole controversy, we're going to be doing the top five title fights of all time. But before we get to this edition of Combat Countdown, one may wonder if any company sponsors this week's Combat Countdown, Gumby. Absolutely. The Combat Countdown is brought to you by Maroon Social. M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiast. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, or jujitsu, it does not matter. You can log your training sessions, tag your training partners, log your competitions, weigh-ins, and so much more, all right in the palm of your hand with one nifty little app. Download Maroon Social wherever it is you download apps. 
All right. This is so exciting. And we, of course, can't wait to hear your feedback on this list. We'll get right to it. And I just want to say, when you look at the number of people who have been in interim title fights, you have the likes of Andre Arlovsky, legend, uh, Nick Diaz, certainly a controversial figure, Connor fucking McGregor, Dustin Poirier, the two men who will fight next week, Max Holloway, Israel Adesanya, uh, a lot of big names have obviously been in interim title fights. Some of those interim title reigns have gone on to be legitimate title reigns. Some have just petered out, and it's like they never happened. But it doesn't take away the fact that we've gotten some badass fights out of it. I'll mention right off the top, these guys didn't make the list, but Jose Aldo versus Frankie Edgar was for an interim title fight back at UFC 200, kind of buried underneath all the John Jones controversy that week, Brock Lesnar coming back. It was a nice fight. Definitely not top five worthy, though. Uh, and then Tony Ferguson versus Kevin Lee back at UFC 216. You know, kind of marred by the fact that Kevin Lee had staff infection in the fight, but you still got a fun finish out of it, a submission in an interim title fight. And it was really kind of Tony's crowning moment. What we thought would be him going on to, you know, perhaps a title fight, if not even a title victory, a, a legit one. It never happened. His career went in a very different direction after that. So, Kind of crazy to think about. Had to mention them. They're not our honorable mentions, though. I bring them up just to show you how deep a list this is. Let's get to number five. We'll get to our honorable mentions in a bit. Number five, near and dear to your heart, Gumby, Andre Arlovsky versus Tim Sylvia back at UC 51 for the heavyweight interim title. Yeah, so first of all, this one has a special place in my heart because as anybody who listens to this show or any podcast I've ever done knows, uh, I'm a big Andre Arlovsky fan. I always have been, and this is his moment of getting his belt for the first time. It's got so many cool aspects of it, despite the fact that the fight only lasts like 30 seconds. Uh, the First of all, the fact that like the announcers are sitting there talking about how Tim Sylvia is going to wreck him on the feet only to get him like starched right away. Like He gets rocked by Andre Arlovsky. Then Arlovsky throws punches from the guard with with like an elevated guard there for Tim Sylvia for a couple minutes before he's like, ah, screw this, and heel hooks him uh, in like uh, what I believe it to be the only heel hook submission in UFC title history. Um, so obviously, as a couple of grappling nerds, you got to love that. Sylvia taps almost immediately, which is really cool. And if you're going back and watching this on Fight Pass, like I, which I highly suggest doing it, it's not going to take too much of your day. It's also super weird because the champion, Frank Mir, is announcing the fight next to the, the broadcast partner. So it's, like, fun in a whole bunch of different ways. But, uh, again, I couldn't have a list of the best interim title fights without Andre Arlovsky on there. So, yeah, we squeaked him in there on number five. I love it. Uh, the next fight, number four, uh, I've gone back and watched this several times. It led to uh, the winner actually going on to face the champion in a very great title fight as well and i'm talking about carlos condit versus nick diaz back at ufc 143 condit one went on to face a returning gsp after injury almost head kick knocked him out at least we thought for a brief second but gsp won really in convincing fashion when you take away just the head kick uh but that was such a crazy just year uh in the welterweight title history uh, and this fight, nonetheless, was a great interim title fight. Yeah, I, I thought it was a great fight as well. Uh, you know, it, it, it wound up going down with Diaz just winning, uh, well, one round on two judges' scorecards, two two rounds on another one. 
Uh, but yeah, Car- Carlos won fairly easily. But it, you know, just exactly what you expect from those two at that stage in their career, right? Like both of them, just violent dudes with great boxing, uh, putting everything together all at once, and and, and it was just. Like you said, a really memorable fight for the fact that, that you know, it was violent, what came next, what was going on in the division at the time. Yeah, I, I love Carlos Condit versus Nick Diaz. It's a, just a good MMA fight, and mm-hmm. it had the requisite Diaz doing just enough to say, ah, the judges screwed me and feeling like he still won, but clearly yeah, Carlos and, Condit and, won. And, and, and convincing a bunch of, like any good Diaz, uh, convincing a bunch of fans that he won despite the fact he very clearly lost. <laughs> exactly. Now, the next fight uh, is not, you know, Diaz versus Condit is almost that classical, like classic MMA fight. Each guy, you know, has some good moments, but it's highly technical. You watch that with your glasses and a clipboard and you mark out to all the great combinations being thrown and strategy. The next fight, albeit a roller coaster, and both guys had, you know, their fleeting moments, it wasn't a five round decision. It was a finish in the second round and it was kind of a crazy come from behind. We're of course talking about Conor McGregor versus Chad Mendez at UFC 189. It was supposed to be Jose Aldo. He pulled out. Mendez stepped in, probably a little out of shape, injured. McGregor, also it was revealed in that McGregor documentary, you know, years later, his knee was severely bad for this fight. But they went out there, Sinead O'Connor, sung Conor out to the ring. It was nuts. It was kind of the height of Conor mania. What a fight. Yeah, the the height of Conor Mania, you, you actually said two things in there that were pretty much stole the words right out of my mouth. The height of Conor Mania, right? Like, that is the crowning Conor McGregor moment. Some people will say it's the Aldo nine-second or seven-second starching or whatever it was. For me, this was the Conor moment of his whole career for me. Like, it, it was just so incredible to see him have those moments that everybody was saying he was going to have, where he was not going to be able to defend the takedown, blah, 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 blah. And then it not mattering. Because when he gets up that second time and he just marches Chad Mendez down, there was a feeling in the back of your head where you're like, oh, fuck, this is over. Like, he didn't even land a punch yet. And you were like, oh, you can see it in his face. He's about to kill Chad Mendez. Uh, and it was so, you know, the other thing that you said there in the, the beginning that stole the words right out of my mouth, it was a roller coaster. Like if you were going in there feeling the height of Connor mania, you, you had the high of him coming out to Sinead O'Connor. You had the low of him getting taken down and kind of held down like so many people said was going to happen. And then you have that moment where he does stand up and he has that look in his eye and he's marching Chad Mendez back to the fence. And then he just you know, for lack of a better term, he executes him with a left hand, right? Like just the way we knew he was going to do. So it was like the high, the low and back to the highs. It was such a crazy fight. And it was exactly what we expected. It was crazy. And what we expected at the same time. Uh, so the next fight now goes back to more of that classic, you know, t- high level, two of the best in the world, uh, just technique on display, and it almost gets lost in the shuffle of all the madness of just the past two years, um, especially in both their careers. But Dustin Poirier 
fought Max Holloway in a rematch back in April of 2019. And this was actually for the lightweight title. So Holloway had come up, which was ironic because he almost stepped in to face Khabib, uh, you know, but it ended up ultimately going to, um, uh, why am I blanking right now? Uh, oh, Ally Akita. Oh, Ally Akita, thank you. Um, I don't know why I just blanked on his name. But because 70 and, uh, different people were, were booked for that fight at some point. <laughs> right, because it was Tony, and then it was going to be Max, and then you, it ultimately ended up being I think, Ally Akita. I, I also think Anthony Pettis was thrown around in there, and if I'm not mistaken, Paul Felder, but he wasn't in the rankings, so they, they wouldn't clear him either. <laughs> and it was also the week that Connor threw a dolly at a bus. Yep. <laughs> but what's so funny is, so the winner of this would end up going on to face Khabib. And of course, Poirier won this fight against Max Holloway for the interim title and then got choked out by Khabib later that year. But it doesn't take away UFC 236, Poirier, Holloway. What a fight. Yeah, it, it was an absolutely insane fight. I just pulled up fight metric uh, prior to talking about this because it seemed important to you. But if you look at the significant strikes in this one, they were only separated by three significant strikes over five rounds. It was 181 to 179 for for Max Holloway, who actually had the more strikes, which is just an crazy number of significant strikes, right? We're, we're up over 350 significant strikes in just 25 minutes. That's insane already, but the big difference in this fight, too, was the fact that while they were landing roughly the same amount of strikes, Poye just looked like he had hammers for hands whereas Holloway looked like he was just touching them and it was very clear that like Holloway was not meant to step up to lightweight to do these kinds of fights but man was it exciting as hell and I will say you know when I was I was coming up with this list and trying to come up with options I actually had this at number one for a little while but we're going to talk about number one in a second and why that one just slightly edges this one out but man this this was a 25 minute war this is why it's worth the rewatch, too. You just brought up the fact that they're separated by three significant strikes. So you would think, okay, that must have been some crazy judges scoring. But no, actually, all three judges scored the fight the exact same way, all giving Poirier four out of five rounds. They all gave Max the third round. But, I mean, I can't remember a time in MMA history where they were so close on, on significant strikes. And all three judges had a family like that. All right, let's get to number one. You teased it, then we'll talk our honorable mentions that didn't make the cut. And this one was clear to me. It's Israel Adesanya versus Kelvin Gastelum for the interim middleweight title, uh, UC 236. Yeah, well, first of all, craziest part about this, same event as Max Holloway, Dustin Poirier. One fight before those two. Um, I don't think enough people remember that we had all of that on the same pay-per-view one night. Um, it is crazy to think about. I did look at the rest of that pay-per-view just to be like, did I miss any other crazy events that happened? No, that, that card sucked except for these two on top. It was like Khalil Roundtree and Eric Anders and uh, Dwight Grant beat Alan Jovan. Yeah, it was not good. But this fight, let's talk about this for a second. Insane in so many ways. We get to see Israel Adesanya push to the brink because let, let's be honest here. Kelvin Gaslam has taken him closer to a decision than any other man in history, which is an insane sentence. But Calvin Gastelum looks so good in here. You get that moment right before the fifth round where Israel's like mouth is all jacked up. His like lips are all swollen. His eye is kind of swelling a little bit. And the camera zooms in on his face and he mouths the words, I'm ready to die in here. 
And then he goes out and just about kills Kelvin Gastelum in that fifth round, right? Like it wound up being his best round where he dropped Kelvin and, and given another 30 seconds, I'm convinced he finishes Kelvin there. Um, but like, man, for, for Kelvin Gastelum to have stepped in there, you know, and, and battled him in the way that he battled him that nobody else has. I mean, like, first of all, what a great moment for Calvin Gastelum's career that ultimately doesn't get him the title. But I, I mean, like we said it about the Conor McGregor one. It seems like the Conor McGregor moment. This sort of seems like the Israel Adesanya moment, right? Like we've gotten him dominating people before, but this was his war. And for it to have been for an interim title before he went and claimed the, the undisputed title. I mean, like it's crazy to think about. Boom. I agree with everything. Go back and watch that fight. It's amazing. Uh, we had some awesome honorable mentions, too. Shane Carwin versus Frank Mir at UFC 111. And then, of course, Gaethje versus Ferguson at UFC 216. Both fights, you know, I mean, you got finishes in both of them, uh, but kind of one-sided. Uh, I mean, I guess Arlovsky versus Tim Sylvia is very one-sided, too. But, uh, you know, that had the freakier finish. But both fun, fun fights. They definitely deserve honorable mention, but I'm confident in us not putting them in the top five. Me too. I will say I do have a soft spot for Shane Carwin versus Frank Mir. Uh, that one I, I like very vividly remember watching and like where I was watching that. It was in an Applebee's because they used to show fights for free and you didn't have to buy a pay-per-view. And so you got dinner along with your pay-per-view price. Um, but it was in an Applebee's and I just remember him putting Mir up against the cage and turning him into a bobblehead the doll up, for like 30 the seconds. The uppercuts, yeah. Yeah, and then he fell and then they let him hit him like 30 more times, which was <laughs> cruel because the size of Shane Carwin's hands couldn't have felt good. So, um, but yeah, that whole like Shane Carwin leading into the Brock Lesnar fight, I mean like that was so good too. So, um, yeah, I got a little bit of a soft spot for that. Gaethje Ferguson wound up being a little bit more one-sided than I liked, so... Um, and of course, watching Tony Ferguson lose is always sad. So, um, watching Frank Mir lose is a little less sad. So yeah, I got a soft spot for that one, but just a little bit behind Arlovsky. Yeah, there are certain guys and girls actually too, because I'll, I'll have to put Rhonda in this mix. Um, but you know, the, the people who come in and just dominate and have those quick, like within first round finishes where you're just kind of holding your breath when they fight. You know, Ronda for some of those fights, Connor for some of his early fights, Naganu even to this day. And then there was Carwin too, and he never necessarily achieved the same level. I think he was a little older, uh, and then he had way too many injuries. But Shane Carwin was kind of like a mood, to borrow a phrase from the kids these days. Uh, Shane Carwin was just a fun fighter to watch for a certain period of time you know yeah absolutely I, I think in, you're entirely right about that and then like it was also that era where I, I mean Frank Mir even reacted to Brock Lesnar and Shane Carwin becoming big deals by trying to get bigger right like that was that era that was that era of heavyweight where people thought you have to be enormous in order to win and it's not necessarily true and it, it didn't necessarily work but, like, it, it, that that's what he thought. So, like, like Shane Carwin, you're right, was, was not only a mood, but he, like, almost changed the way heavyweights were thinking at that time. 
Agreed. Boom. That wraps it up for us. Let us know how we did at Top Turtle MMA. We're accepting both love and hate feedback. Gumby, this train is a moving. Where should we go next? Yeah, we're going to transition now to my interview with Jerome Rivera, who preps for his fight with UFC 264 against Zagazuma Gulov. He talks about that and rebounding from a couple of losses in a row. And we're going to get to that interview for you right now. All right, and joining me today is Jerome Rivera, who fights Zalga Zumagulov at UFC 264 on Saturday, July 10th. So, Jerome, I want to start by talking about your UFC career, because it's been a tough road to start. Obviously, the three straight losses, a lot of them on short notice and short camps. Can you give us a little bit about what your takeaway of this uh, this quick span has been so far? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, it definitely hasn't started off ideally. But, um, uh, you know, it's just like uh, kind of my mindset when I first got signed to the UFC and my mindset just last year completely, I was like, you know, I want to get as much experience as I can. I want to fight as much as I can. I know there's nothing that's going to deter me. Of course, every time I go out there, I'm going out there to win. But, you know, I was also thinking about like just how much better I get with every fight and taking in the experience from every fight. And it definitely sucked uh, taking those losses, but, you know, in, in the end of my career, I think I'm going to look back and say, you know, those those three losses changed me as a fighter and made me a better fighter, and I truly think that we're going to go on a good run right now, and I'm excited for the future. I feel like I learned a lot in those three fights. And, and you mentioned, so, experience and knowing that you, you how to feel in the cage and stuff like that, but, but what other big takeaways have you had in those three fights? I mean, you say... You, you're going to look back at this like you've changed. What what feels like it has changed the most in these three fights? Yeah, I think there's learning lessons with every fight. I think in the Tyson Nam fight, one of my biggest takeaways was uh, I went out there and I kind of fought his kind of his style of fight. I didn't use any of my grappling. Uh, my boxing wasn't quite on point. Um, in the Davison Figueredo fight, I felt I'm not Davison, a Francisco Figueredo fight. Um, that fight, I felt like I just didn't take enough risks. I started taking more risks at the end of that fight, and I started doing well. Um, but I was a little bit too gun-shy early on. And then in that O'Day Osborne fight, I had a I had a great game plan in mind, what I wanted to do. I went out there and threw a lazy kick really early. So one really huge takeaway is just you got to be uh, very cautious, and uh, you got to really pick and choose every single strike that you throw in there. Uh, every every strike you throw could have pretty bad consequences if you miss or uh, if you get countered. So, yeah, those were some of my takeaways. And then also just setting myself up for what I'm good at. You know, I um, I, I shouldn't have taken that O'Day Osborne fight, to be honest. But, you know, I believe in myself. And uh, we had to go back and we got offered it to us again. I would take it again for the experience. Um, but, yeah, you know, just learning lessons that I took the short notice fight against Tyson Nam to get into the UFC. But I think going forward... Um, I definitely am going to make sure I have full training camps for all my fights. Well, and that was going to be another question I asked you because, yeah, you're right. Two of those fights come with, with virtually no training camp uh, and another one, you know, with a really late opponent change. What does it feel like now to have, you know, it's been, it will have been five months since your last fight this time. I assume you got a good training camp, single opponent the whole time. What's it sort of been like preparing for one person and actually doing that with your team? It's been great. I had a really great off season. Um, I learned a lot of my off season. I stayed in really good shape, 
And they offered us this fight since about mid-March. So when they first offered it to us, you know, I kind of, my idea was don't get too fixated that we're going to fight Jalgas because who knows between now and then I had so much time. I just thought there could be an opponent change or he could get hurt or I could get hurt. You know, we just got to, just got to take it one day at a time. So just the fact that the opponent has stuck with it being Jalgas the whole time, we've gotten a great game plan going for him. Physically, I've been grinding for, I don't know how many weeks now, but the training camp has been going great. So yeah, it really does feel like this is going to be my, I mean, in my mind, especially having the crowd and everything kind of feels like it's going to be my UFC debut all over again. Well, and that was what I was going to ask you next is about the full crowd. You're, You're not only going to get a full crowd, but you're going to get a full crowd in Las Vegas that is all hyped up for, you know, maybe one of the great trilogies of all time. What, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? You know, straight out the gate. Uh, it's pretty crazy to think about just thinking that I'm going to, from what I've looked at, it looks like I'm the first part of the card. So to think that I'm opening up a card that's, that's I don't know, it's going to be a legendary card. I'm going to look back one day and say, yeah, I fought on the Connor and Poirier card. So it's pretty crazy. And uh, it just, like you said, I feel like I'm going to get the whole UFC experience this time, having the crowd and such. We're still going to be in a bubble and everything while we're out there, but having the crowd is going to be a huge plus. So I'm excited for it. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about the fight a little bit itself, because you said, you know, you've got a good game plan, having gotten a plan just for one opponent for all this time, and it's Zalga Zumagulov. So, obviously, when they offer you that name and, and you see it, you said you didn't get too latched on, but... Uh, obviously now you've you've had some time to look at him you've had some time to prepare for him what are sort of your initial thoughts on Zaga Zumagulov yeah it's funny um before I got right after that Ode Osborne fight or whatever people were like who do you think you're gonna fight next and I had kept telling people I was like I don't know there's, there's this Zaga Zumagulov guy and uh he's 0-2 and, and he fought the week after me in Abu Dhabi so I had had a weird feeling that I was gonna get matched up with him and I have done I had done some studying on him before we even got the matchup because uh, my teammate Jordan Espinosa was supposed to fight him. And uh, I think he's pretty relentless at his pressure. He likes to go forward a lot. I don't think he's a very technical striker. His wrestling, he seems like he has like a really good blast double, um, some pretty decent grappling, but he doesn't seem like he has very much jujitsu ju- in his arsenal. I don't think he uses wrestling as much as he should. So uh, I just think it looks like a really good matchup for us. I think he's very prideful the way he fights. That's why he doesn't use his wrestling as much as he should. So maybe we can use that to our advantage as well. Uh, but I think I'm going to have an answer for him everywhere the fight takes place. And, and you mentioned that he likes to move forward and he likes to have lots of pressure. And, and you sort of mentioned there in the Davison Figueredo fight that, that you yourself felt a little tentative and like you could move forward a little bit more. Do you feel like this type of opponent brings out the best version of Jerome Rivera? Yeah, definitely. I think he's definitely going to bring that out of me. He's going to get in my face. He's going to make me fight. And I think that's kind of what I need right now is once he gets me going and I start fighting, then it's going to be my fight. Well, we're certainly looking forward to it. Now, before I let you go, I do want to ask you, because I like to ask all the fighters, do you got a prediction for how this one ends? How do you see it going down on July 10th? I've played it back in my mind so many times, and I always try and envision myself coming out from bad situations, and I just do not see Jalgas beating me anywhere. Uh, I see, and for some reason, maybe I'll call it with this prediction, but I keep telling my coach, I have a feeling he's going to run into a left knee, so I think he's going to run into a knee on one of those takedowns. So I had to make a prediction, I guess, for saying knockout. 
Oh, I love the prediction. I love how specific it is. Once again, fans, it's Jerome Rivera who fights Zaga Zumagulov at UFC 264. That fight takes place on July 10th. Jerome, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Nice talking with you again. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We couldn't do what we do without you guys. We also couldn't do what we do without our sponsors, Maroon Social and Better Than Vegas. Make sure you find those companies in their respective places on the interwebs and in the app store. And, of course, we want to make sure that you guys are following us on Twitter and Instagram. That's at Top Turtle MMA. You can find all kinds of extra great content, fight night commentary, and so much more in those places. And until next week, I'm Daniel Gumby-Vreeland. He's Shockwave Dave Tremonte. We'll catch you then.